All right. Uh, so our passage tonight again is uh, Mark chapter 12, uh, Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17, and we'll go ahead and read it in just a moment. Um, but if you're like me, uh, or probably many of us, right, you enjoy watching movies or television, right? Some of us might even have like a favorite actor or actress. Uh, now, unless they're playing themselves, right, these actors or actresses, they're, they're playing a part. Uh, they're playing a character, right? And I'm not sure what the last movie you guys may have seen in the theater. Uh, I think ours was uh, Top Gun, uh, the, the second one, not, not the first one. Yeah, I don't, there's probably like maybe two of you guys that were alive when the first one came out. So the second one, okay, the second one, right? And you guys know, right, the main character in the movie Right, his name is Tom Cruise, right? But it's not Tom Cruise the person, right? He's playing a character, right? His character is Maverick, or I think Pete Mitchell is his like name, right? So no one in the movie is calling him Tom or Mr. Cruise, right? He's just playing his part along with everyone else in the movie. And even in ancient times, right, theater has been a major medium for entertainment, right? Way before movies or television was around or were around, right? In ancient times, actors would perform on a stage, usually like in an outdoor amphitheater, right? And these actors, uh, in order to show what kind of character they were playing uh, or in acting, right, they would wear a mask or they would put on a mask, right? And this is where we get our word hypocrite from, Right? It refers to this type of on-stage actor that puts on a mask. And so someone pretending to be someone that they're not. Right? And so we'll keep that in mind um, for our passage tonight. Uh, and as we get into our passage, uh, it's a pretty well-known passage for most of us. Right? We're, we're familiar with the quote or some variation of it. Right? Render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And you're aware that this statement is a response uh, to a question about paying taxes, right? But what's at stake between this interaction that we'll see between Jesus and the Pharisees uh, is a question that goes far beyond just taxes, right? And we understand that taxes are a big deal, right? Taxes have always been a big deal, right? Whether it's our government or ancient empires, right? They are in large part, uh, they help run or finance, or these governments or empires are sustained by taxes, right? Your government is sustained by taxes, right? A lot of taxes, right? We pay taxes on the wages we receive, but that's not all, right? Whatever money you have left over, Right, will be subject to some sort of tax. Right? If you invest your money, uh, the money that you make, that's going to be subject to a tax. Right? If you buy something big, like a car, right, that gets taxed. If you buy something even bigger, like a house, that gets taxed, and it gets taxed every year. And then even if you want to buy something small, right, if you want to buy something small, like a can of Coke, right, that gets taxed too. Right? And so we can talk a lot about taxes for a long time and you know, kind of bemoan the necessity of taxes or perhaps the perceived inefficient use of them. But if we do that, you know, it might just kind of walk us or steer us away 
from kind of some of the key elements in our passage that we will try not to miss. Um, so before we read it, uh, just kind of a little review of what's going on in our situation here. Right? We're in the middle of Holy Week or Passion Week. Okay? This is the week of Passover. So everyone all over Israel has gathered in Jerusalem. Right? The entire nation pretty much has descended, or I guess you know, ascended, you could say, um, to visit Jerusalem for the Passover. So the city is jam-packed, right? So you can imagine like a whole city of people probably just kind of like shoulder to shoulder uh, with, you know, it's just so crowded. There's really, you know, not a lot of room for anywhere, anyone or anywhere to walk, right? It's, you know, a whole nation in one little city. Uh, and the beginning of this week was highlighted by Jesus's entry into Jerusalem, right? And we know that as the triumphal entry, right? That was the Sunday. Uh, and then we remember he cleansed the temple, right? And then after that, he goes away from Jerusalem, and then he comes back, you know, and the chief priests, they, they question his authority. And then he gives everyone, uh, you know, we learned a couple weeks ago, he gives them the parable of the vine growers, right? And that's where he kind of pronounces the judgment on the Pharisees. I mean, but ever since Jesus' ministry began, right, the Pharisees have felt as if he was threatening their way of life. Right? They missed the attention that they were getting from the people. They missed the adoration of the people. Right? Everyone, they wanted everyone to be looking at them and not Jesus. And so, like we had mentioned in the most recent parable that he had said or um, given uh, in front of the Pharisees in the crowd, right, he exposes them. He exposes them as hypocrites, right? With their mask on, it looks like they're taking care of the people. It looks like they're trying to guide and lead them, but they're really not, right? It's just an act, right? Behind the mask, they use their position uh, to take care of themselves, to feed their pride and their greed. And so now they're at the point where they want to kill him more than they've ever wanted to before. So they come up with a perfect plan. Right? They come up with what they th probably think is a foolproof plan that'll finally get Jesus killed. And so with that, uh, let's go ahead and read our text. Uh, so this is Mark uh, chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. And they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. They came to him and they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it not, or is it lawful to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Okay, so for our passage tonight, uh, we'll be kind of breaking it into two different parts. Uh, so first, uh, so number one, right, this is going to be uh, the Pharisees' approach. The Pharisees' approach. This is verses uh, 13 to the first half of 15, so you can say 13 to 15a. And within um, this first half of uh, the passage, uh, we see their approach uh, further in the, our outline as A, the treaty, uh, the treaty 
and then B, the trap. Okay, the Pharisees approach, uh, and we see the treaty and the trap. Second, and then the second half of the passage, uh, the second half of verse 15 all the way down to 17, uh, we see Jesus' answer. Okay, this is Jesus' answer. So the Pharisees approach, and then Jesus' answer. And his answer we will break down into two parts as well. Uh, A is the revelation of hypocrisy, and then B, the response to hypocrisy. Okay. Uh, so we'll begin uh, with the Pharisees' approach, right? And uh, we'll, we look at verse uh, 13. Uh, and there it says again, Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. So in order to get Jesus, the Pharisees align themselves, or they make a treaty in some ways, with the Herodians. Right? This right here, this union or treaty, uh, you can already see the hypocrisy. Right? Why, right? Why would the Pharisees be working with the Herodians? Well, and why would that be such a hypocritical union? Right? Well, we know who the Pharisees are, right? So we don't need to go into too much detail about who the Pharisees are. But who are the Herodians? Right? Do we know them? Well, as the name implies, this is a sect of people who are loyal or support the Her- Herodian dynasty or King Herod as their king. Right? They were, in many respects, the antithesis of what devout Jews, and especially the Pharisees, would stand for. First, right, the Herods were kings mostly just by title. Uh, they weren't like actual king kings uh, that we might think of. Right? They were placed in power by Caesar or Rome. So they served the Roman Empire, basically, and they had Rome's best interest uh, when it came to ruling the Jews, right? So it, meaning accepting Herod or, you know, the Herodian dynasty means that you would be accepting Caesar as your ruler. So then identifying yourself or being a, a Herodian then means it's kind of like you're, you're a traitor, right? Or even worse, uh, since, you know, many Israelites and Pharisees, you know, ought to and, and should truly believe that God is their true king, you know, that might make them a heretic, right? Because you're supposed to have God as your king, but here, you know, you're serving and you're aligning yourself with this pagan king instead. And second, uh, these Herods, um, they weren't even Jewish, okay? They were not Jewish. They were, uh, they were what's called Idumean, okay? So if you look in your Bible maps uh, at the time of Jesus and you kind of see where Idumea is, right, you'll see that it's an area that's kind of where Edom uh, used to be or was, Right, and if you recall, right, who does Edom belong to or who are the descendants of Edom? Right, it's Esau. Right? So the Herods, in fact, were very likely descendants of the Edomites or descendants of Esau. So now, when, remember when you look back in, or remember back in Genesis and I think God telling Rebecca, I think it was, right? You know, God said that the older would serve the younger. Right? Esau would be serving Jacob. Well, now you have kind of the opposite that's happening, right? Sitting on your throne, or for the Israelites, sitting on your throne is someone descended from Esau, right? It's the one who shouldn't be ruling, or the one that you should be ruling is now ruling over you, right? So this kind of makes it even more humiliating. And then third, uh, the Herodians, unlike the Pharisees or the Sadducees, they weren't they weren't a religious or political, I mean, they weren't a religious group. They were more of like a political group, right? And on top of that, they, 
you know, it was believed that they lived kind of like a very Hellenistic or very Greek lifestyle, okay? A very pagan lifestyle that was filled with a lot of corruption, a lot of sensuality, right? So this kind of lifestyle would be very, very different or very opposite from what, you know, the type of life that the Pharisees would have tried to live. So considering these three things, right, you can see that the Herodians would be kind of the exact opposite of everything the Pharisees would stand for. But yet, when it comes to something that they want, right, when it comes to something that the Pharisees want, right, they had no problems uniting themselves with a group that they otherwise would find very detestable. And we ought to know that this actually isn't the first time that the Pharisees and Herodians have conspired together. Back in Mark chapter 3, when Jesus was in Galilee and he's healing the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath, you know, they, the Pharisees got mad at him too back then, right? And they said, and it says there that they began to take counsel with the Herodians as to how they might destroy him, right? Way back in the beginning of Jesus's ministry, right, they already wanted to kill him and they were willing to conspire with the Herodians to do it. And so that's the, that's the treaty, right? They're working now with the Herodians, right? Someone that, people that they probably otherwise wouldn't have anything that they would want to do with. But for the sake of achieving their goal of killing Jesus, you know, they're willing to do it. And so what do they do? Right? They set up the trap, right? They set up a trap. And verse 13 says they devised a trap or they wanted to trap him in a statement. Right? The word there, trap, right? it's, I believe, the only time this word trap is used in the New Testament. And it's exactly what it means. It's a, it's a hunting term, right? You know, like you hunt animals. When you hunt animals, you want to trap them, right? So it's almost as if they wanted to corner him like an animal so that there's no escape and then kill him. And to their credit, right, it seems like they actually have a pretty good plan, Right, a well-placed trap. Right, it's for the Pharisees. So far, it's been a pretty bad week for them. Jesus comes in, right, and the people treat him like a king as he enters into Jerusalem. Then Jesus clears their marketplace, you know, in the temple, and he's calling them robbers. They come back. They try to challenge his authority, right, and Jesus confounds them with a question, you know, about, you know, is John's ministry from God or from man, right? And how do they respond? They, they don't know how to respond, so they're just like, uh, we, we don't know, right? And it just kind of leaves them looking foolish in front of everyone. And then Jesus speaks to them the parable about the vine growers where he calls them murderers. But now for the Pharisees, right, the tables have turned, right? They think they have him, right? They got him, right? So they get ready to lay the trap. And oftentimes, right, when you lay a trap, what makes it more effective is if you have some bait. In Luke 20, in Luke's account of this uh, interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees, it says, in verse 20, Luke 20, 20, it says, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and authority of the governor. Right. The word pretended that Luke uses there, 
right? That's the same word there for hypocrite, right? It's an interesting detail, right, that these people who are asking the questions are, Luke calls them spies, right? They're not, maybe they're not even really Pharisees or Herodians, people just that are working for them, right? Maybe they didn't want Jesus to recognize them because he might just dismiss them, right? Oh, you're just one of those Pharisees. I don't want to talk to you and not answer this question that they have, right? And you can see the irony in the statement too that Luke has, right? Or that those who pretended to be righteous, right? They pretended to be righteous, right? And it's ironic because that's kind of who the Pharisees were, right? They were people who pretended to be righteous anyways, right? They think that they're righteous, but they're actually evil inside, right? So first, they plan to flatter Jesus, right? That's the bait, to get him to say what they want him to say, right? So they go to him, and then in verse 14, right, it says, they call him teacher, right? As if they really would care what he has to say or if they would really actually respect what he has to say. And then they say, we know that you're truthful, right? So whatever answer you give is going to be the truth, and it, that's going to be what you mean. And then they say, and you defer to no one, right? And defer to no one, right? Your answer isn't going to be based on what other people think, right? You're not influenced by others, Jesus. And he says, you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth, right? You're going to say exactly what God wants you to say, right? You're going to say what's right in God's eyes. And again, there's more irony because, you know, what they're saying about Jesus is exactly true, right? But they're saying it with evil intent, right? But that's, that's the bait, right? They try to butter him up so that they can get him to say what they want him to say, right? And then they lay out the trap, and the trap comes in the form of a question. And the question that they have, right? Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? There's no way out of this question, right? It's either yes or no, right? Pay or don't pay. Do we pay or do we don't pay or do we not pay, right? For Jesus, it's supposed to be a lose-lose answer no matter which way he decides to answer, right? Through the flattery, they think that they have persuaded into giving Jesus or making Jesus give them the right answer and they want him to say no. They want him to say no, don't pay the tax, right? Because if he doesn't, well, because any true Israelite would say we shouldn't pay taxes to a pagan king, right? Jesus, you're not scared of Rome, right? Jesus, you're loyal to your own people, right? This money belongs to God, right? Jesus, they, they want him to say no, don't pay the tax, right? They want him to say no because who else is with the Pharisees there, the Herodians, right? These are the pro-Herod, the pro-Rome supporters, right? And understand that the Roman Empire, they're very weary of any form of rebellion that goes on in their land, right? Any hint of rebellion would be wiped out. And throughout the history of Roman occupation of Israel, right, Israel was not a place that was a stranger to rebellion against Rome, right? And you can kind of Sense that going back all the way to Mark chapter 3 when the Herodians are there, you know, and, and they're also conspiring with uh, the Pharisees to plot to destroy Jesus. 
right? They probably, throughout his whole ministry, been watching him pretty closely, right? They want to see if he's going to be causing any kind of rebellion or insurrection, right? And that's understandable, right? Jesus, wherever he went, he had a huge following. People would follow him wherever he, he would go, you know? And at some point, right, you remember that even the people, they wanted him to be king, so if Jesus says no, right, if he says don't pay the tax, right, then the suspicions of the Herodians would be confirmed, right? Jesus is an insurrectionist, right? He's anti-Rome, he's anti-Caesar, and he's, by not paying the taxes, he's calling for an open rebellion against Rome, and therefore he must die as a traitor to the emperor, right? This is the perfect plan, right? If Jesus answers how he's supposed to, then Rome will do the work of killing him for the Pharisees. And in the off chance that Jesus says, yes, pay the tax, well then that would cause the crowds to turn on him. Right? The Jews that adored him would now hate him. Right? Because now, if he says pay the tax, then that just means that he's supporting Rome and that he's supporting Caesar. He doesn't care about the people. And then the Pharisees will then again return to their position of prominence where they can get the praise and the adoration of the people that they really want, right? And so it'll keep feeding their pride and it'll keep them as the spiritual leaders of the Jews. That's their hypocrisy. And since Jesus' ministry in Galilee began almost three years ago or about three years ago, Right? The Pharisees were waiting and hoping for an opportunity just like this. Right? A chance finally to put down for good this thorn that has been in their side. And as we get to the second half of our passage tonight, then we see how does Jesus respond? This is Jesus' answer. Jesus' answer to the question of the Pharisees. First, he reveals their hypocrisy, right? This is the revelation of their hypocrisy in verse 15, the second part of verse 15, right? It just says there very clearly, but he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why are you testing me? So understand that there's no hiding your motives from God, right? This is no surprise to Jesus, right? For Jesus, this, this really isn't much of a trap at all, right? In Luke, it says that he perceived their craftiness. Right? He perceived their craftiness. Right? When we think of that, like where, where do you think we've heard that before? Right? Where do you think of craftiness? Right? Are the Pharisees really the spiritual leaders or are they someone else? Right? And he continues... And he, he speaks to them and he says, why are you testing me? Right? Jesus knows this isn't a genuine question. Right? But part of what makes this question about paying taxes from the Pharisees so good is that even though it's not genuine, it's a very legitimate question. Right? It has important political and spiritual ramifications and implications for the Jews. But the Pharisees aren't asking this question to address a moral dilemma right, amongst the people. Why are you testing me, he says. Now, sometimes in the Bible, when we see the word test, right, uh, we have writers like Paul or James or Peter, right, they use the word test. And that word test that they use, right, 
That's one that we're familiar with, right? It's directed a lot of times to the readers, right? It's a metallurgical term, right, that describes the testing of metals, right, or the refinement of metals so that you can test the quality or improve the purity, right? But that's not this, right? This isn't that kind of test, right? The word test that Jesus uses is another word. In other contexts, it can mean to tempt. Or in other words, why are you tempting me? Right? It's the same word that the gospel writers use when they're referring to Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. And when Jesus responds right, by stating that you shall not put your put the Lord your God to the test. And back then, right, who was doing the tempting in the wilderness? Right? Jesus knows very well where this question is coming from. Right? You can't hide behind a mask with God. Right? Jesus is revealing their hypocrisy. Right? You Pharisees, you ask the question, in God's name, asking for the truth on behalf of God's people, right? But behind that mask reveals lies. It reveals hate, and it reveals murderous intent, right? They're pretending to be righteous so that they can kill Jesus, right? This scheme kind of sounds like the condemnation that Jesus gives in John chapter 8. And in John chapter 8, 44, it says, you are of the father, the devil, and you want the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he, whatever, whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Right? The Pharisees have always claimed that Abraham was their father, right? But Abraham, Abraham's not their father. And not only that, right, you can also get a sense or you can imagine the, you know, the exasperation in Jesus when he's saying, why are you testing me? Right? It's almost like, why do we have to do this again? Right? Or how many times do we have to do this? Because right? this isn't the first time the Pharisees have tried to test Jesus. Right? They've tried to test him many times. Right? In Mark chapter 8, Verse 11, right, this is after the feeding of the 4,000. Uh, it says, the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Right, again, it's that same word, test. And then uh, in Mark chapter 10, verse 2, right, Jesus is in Judea, past Jordan, and this is kind of just like right before or, or near before the Passion Week, you know, before he comes into Jerusalem. And the Pharisees track him down and they confront him. And it says there that some of the Pharisees came up to Jesus testing him and they began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. Again, they were testing him. And yet, despite all of this, right, Jesus, he doesn't walk away, right? He doesn't refuse to answer, right? he willingly walks right into their trap. And then we see his response. Right? First, he reveals their hypocrisy, and then he responds to their hypocrisy. Right? And he responds by teaching. Right? He responds by teaching. And he gives everyone around who is watching a very valuable lesson. So he says, bring me a denarius to look at. And they brought one. 
Right? So everyone in the crowd is anticipating what Jesus is going to do or say. Right? He, apparently, he's decided to play along. Right? And so there he is, and he's surrounded by who knows how many people. Right? Hundreds, maybe more. Right? All of these people, right? or many of these people, who are looking to kill him. And he's just standing amongst them in the middle of them all, and he's going to give them a lesson. Right? And he's going to do so with a coin. Right? He asks for a denarius. So most likely, this coin isn't going to be too unlike, you know, kind of the coins that we have. Uh, the coin that they had in that day, the denarius, you know, it may have ranged in size. You know, it could possibly be about the size of maybe like a dime or maybe even up to the size of a quarter. And its estimated worth was a day's wage. Right? And this would likely be the amount uh, that one would have to pay for this poll tax. Right? And this poll tax uh, might be paid maybe like once a year. Right? And it would be paid by everyone within the Roman Empire. Right? Kind of like it's their, you know, take a census and you register as part of the census and then you pay your tax. And you most likely would pay this one denarius, right? one day's wage. So you can imagine, right, the Pharisees, right, they probably can't find one of these coins fast enough, right? They probably think that they have him. They got him, right? He fell, he fell for it. And you can probably just kind of imagine kind of the nefarious grins that they have on their faces, right? Finally, after three long years, we finally did it. So Jesus, he has this coin in his hand, and he's showing it to, you know, the Pharisees around him and the Herodians and in the crowd. And then he asks them a question, right? He says in verse 16, he says, whose likeness and inscription is this? Right? Whose likeness and inscription is this? Right? So on the coin, right, uh, as we'll see, there's an image you know, and a little bit of writing, right? Just not unlike our coins today too. Right? And they said to him, Caesar's. Right? So the coin that they had, right, this denarius uh, at that time, it was probably a coin that was minted by the emperor, Emperor Tiberius Caesar, Augustus, uh, maybe as early as like 15, 15 AD, and it was continued to be kind of in circulation or minted up until maybe like mid and late 30s AD, okay? You know, kind of around the time of his reign. So on one side of the coin, right, and, and it's pretty, pretty interesting or amazing that, you know, that these coins actually still exist today. You know, you can see, look them up, you know, they're probably in some museum somewhere, but, you know, the coins have survived and, you know, you can look at them today. And on one side of the coin, there is an image of the head of the Emperor Tiberius with the inscription, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of divine Augustus. And so that's kind of like the head. On the other side, there was an image of a woman that kind of, and it kind of looked like she's sitting down on a chair. And this woman is most likely, and many believe it to be, a lady named Livia. Uh, and that would be his mom, right? The mother of Tiberius, the, the wife of his father, Caesar Augustus. And on that side, it had an inscription, and it reads Pontiff Maxim, right? Pontiff Maxim, which is basically uh, a signal or an indication of the emperor's religious authority over the people, 
So with the inscriptions printed on these coins, right, I think we can kind of better appreciate the political and even spiritual dilemma that the Jews would be in, you know, if they needed to use this type of currency, right? The inscription on the coin claims that Caesar not only has religious authority over them, but that it also claims that he also has a divine nature, right? Caesar is calling himself, right, the son of the divine Augustus, right? It's essentially, he's saying that he is the son of God, right? So he claiming to be God and descended from a God to any Jew, having these coins or using these coins, right? They, they could see it as possessing like little idols, right? And to accept the currency and con- consequently paying the tax uh, using this currency would almost be like an acknowledgement that Caesar has religious authority over them. But also not only that, but it could also mean that you're acknowledging Caesar's divinity. Right? So in other words, they would be committing blasphemy. They would be committing idolatry if they were to pay this tax with this currency. Right? So there are probably many within Israel that are actually really truly conflicted you know, over this issue. Right? And so this adds another layer of genius to the question that the Pharisees have proposed to Jesus. Right? Remember, we previously discussed, if Jesus gives right, the quote-unquote right answer, right? if he says, don't pay the tax, right? Then it would cause him to incriminate himself amongst the Herodians, right? So then, hey, if he says don't pay the tax, then hey, he's a traitor, then, you know, we need to kill him because he's rebelling against Rome. And that's what they wanted, right? And now, if he gave the, or if he gave the affirmative answer, Right? So if he says, yes, pay the tax, right? it is in some way or it can be interpreted as Jesus acknowledging right, Caesar's religious authority over the people. Right? And that would be blasphemy. So therefore, they have Jesus in a position where he really can't say, he can't say, Yes, right? He can't, he can't admit that the Caesar has spiritual authority. He can't admit the divine nature that uh, Caesar has. He can't do it. You know, that's just not right, right? Because remember, they said, oh, you're, you speak the truth, right? You speak only what God says, right? And certainly he's not truly a God, the Caesar, right? So you have to say no, right? You have to say don't pay the tax. And so once you say no, then that's it for you, right? So what does Jesus say? Right, what answer could he possibly give? And in verse 17, uh, it gives, Jesus gives his answer. Right. And he says to them, or he said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And then this section ends and it says, and they were amazed at him. With a simple statement, Jesus not only directly answers the question at hand, but also answers the hypocritical intent in which the question was asked. Right? He walks right into the trap and he disarms it. Right? Because really the heart of the question is, who are you going to submit to? Are you going to submit to God or are you going to submit to Caesar? 
right? But to the surprise of the Pharisees, right, Jesus in essence says, yes, right? submit to both. Right? And in doing so, right, Jesus sets a precedent for the way that you know, we now even today right, view our governing authorities, which later in the New Testament, you know, other authors will kind of elaborate. If you look at Romans 13, Romans 13, uh, verses 1 through 7, uh, Romans 13, 1 through 7, this is what Paul says about government and how, you know, God's people should respond. He says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and those who have opposed and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. And later on, if you skip down uh, to verse 6, if you look at verse 6, 6 and 7 of Romans 13, then Paul uh, concludes, For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes do, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. I mean, doesn't that sound, you know, something similar to when Jesus said, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, right? Render to all what is due. And then First Peter, First Peter chapter 2, I mean, I mean this is something that's probably uh, familiar to us. Uh, in First Peter chapter 2, uh, verse 13, you know, he says, Peter says this, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. right? For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the, ignorant of foolish, the ignorance of foolish men, act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor people, love the brotherhood, Fear God, honor the king. Now, there's exceptions, right, in times where maybe the government's commands may violate God's commands, right? And in those cases, hopefully they're rare cases, but in those cases, then yeah, we're obligated, as it says in Acts 5.29 then, to obey God rather than men, right? But the guiding principle is that God has set forth governing authorities to rule over man for man's good, Right, and therefore must be obeyed. So that means submission to government right, is submission to God. But if we go back to Jesus' response, right, if we look at, at the end of uh, verse 17, right, and what does it say? And they said, and they were amazed at him. Right? What about Jesus' answer was so amazing? Right? Well, Part of it is, you know, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they looked like they had him, right? They had him in this trap and there was no way for him to go, right? And he's able to, like, escape, right? And he escapes with merely a coin. But on top of that, right, we can look back again at how he used the coin to make his point. So Jesus says, right, who's, what does he say, who's, what is on the coin, right, who's, Likeness and inscription 
is on that coin. So, and what do they say? It's Caesar, right? I mean, because that's just what it shows on the coin. Right, so if, if this coin bears the likeness of Caesar, then it rightfully belongs to Caesar. So you pay the tax. But he also says, but then we are to give to God what belongs to God. So then what belongs to God? Well, if Caesar made something, right, if he made something in his likeness and it belongs to him, then what has God's likeness, right? Or another way to put it, what has God made in his likeness? And that's man, right? And that includes Caesar, right? I don't think it was lost on the crowd who saw and heard these things, right? We probably shouldn't be surprised if they made that connection immediately, right? You see the word there when Jesus says likeness, right? That word is also translated as image, right? And in the Septuagint, when you think about the word image, or even, you know, when we think in our Bibles, when we think about the word image, you know, where do we go? And we go to Genesis 1, right? God made man in his own image, right? Or in his own likeness. So that means you pay the tax because it belongs to Caesar. But everyone, including Caesar, belongs to me. So as we wrap up um, this passage, just some things to think about, you know, for us as we kind of went through this passage. One, Beware of hypocrisy, okay? In the church, yeah, but, you know, also within ourselves, right? Sometimes, you know, we can put on a mask and you keep the mask on for so long, right? You start really believing that's who you really are. You know, maybe that's what happened to the Pharisees. But beware of hypocrisy. And then second, uh, submission to government is submission to God, right? Therefore, you can submit to the government with joy, right? Even if it's hard. And then lastly, right? We understand that we all belong to God, right? We all belong to him. And so we follow him. You know, in, uh, in the book of Mark, right? Mark is a book that, you know, one of the main themes is that it teaches us about discipleship. It teaches us about how we can follow Christ. And in this passage, or even when you think about kind of the coin that Jesus holds up, right, the inscription on it, and it's, you know, pretty common knowledge, right? Everyone knows that Caesar thinks that he is the son of God. But if you look back way at the beginning of the book of Mark, You know, Mark says, you know, he starts the gospel by saying, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God, right? There's only one Son of God, right? It's not Caesar, and it's Jesus. So for any disciple, right, you will have to choose who you're going to follow, especially in this time, and it's not easy, right? It's not an easy choice, but there's only one choice, and that's Jesus. 
Well, so uh, let's go ahead and uh, we'll close our time with a word of prayer and then um, we can kind of take a look at uh, some of the questions that we have uh, for us tonight. All right, uh, let's pray. Uh, dear God, uh, we just uh, thank you again for your word. Uh, we thank you for your wisdom. We thank you for uh, your willingness to uh, bring about truth uh, even in the most hostile of situations. And with that truth, uh, it continues to guide us even today. And help us to be diligent disciples. Uh, if there is uh, any uh, hypocrisy among us, if there is any greed, if there is any pride, um, if there is any anger, uh, just teach us to put those things away uh, so that we can properly follow you. Uh, because we are made in your likeness, therefore we belong to you. Uh, so may you use us in a way that honors yourself. I want to just uh, pray uh, for the rest of this evening, uh, for the fellowship that we'll have. Uh, may it just be a joy for us and uh, just uh, honoring to you. So we just thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.